I think it's fair to say this is not your typical election. I am not a natural politician. Everybody loves me. Have you always told the truth? I've always tried to. Honestly, she's guilty as hell. I'm going to tell you what I really think of Donald Trump. I could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody and I wouldn't lose any voters, okay? You know, I have to say, I no longer think he's funny. I know more about ISIS than the generals do. No, Donald. You don't. Have you even read the United States Constitution? I regret those comments that he made. Fathers will be able to say to their daughters, you too can grow up to be president. We need a political revolution. Nobody knows the system better than me. Really? Which is why I alone can fix it. USA! 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 From the New York Times, this is The Run-Up. I'm Michael Barbaro. Donald Trump set off a political earthquake this week with this single line. If she gets to pick her judges, nothing you can do, folks. Although the Second Amendment people, maybe there is, I don't know. I don't know. You know what I mean? Something is going on. Those are the Trumpisms we don't really talk that much about. They can seem like almost unconscious verbal tics from Donald Trump. I don't know. I think that to understand Trump and his entire candidacy... You have to understand the interplay between the two parts of that sentence we just listened to. A provocation, and then this strange, ambiguous caveat that follows it, where he almost signals to you that it didn't even happen. That together, they make for a really explosive cocktail. Later, we'll talk to Thomas Friedman, a columnist at the Times, about just how explosive this can all get. Right now, I'm joined in the studio by my colleague Patrick Healy, who's been thinking a lot about Trump and the language he uses throughout this entire campaign. You know, with Trump, I think when he uses the I don't know, it's a way to kind of like skate through language that may come back to bite him. I mean, I think he's able to say very controversial things and leaven them with this sense of like, I don't know. It's like a, it's like a real-time verbal asterisk that's, yeah. that's being put there, like a footnote, and then you can go back to it later on and find it and say, see, I... I didn't, I, uh, you know, I, I was joking. I think he's done that repeatedly. I mean, I think he's sort of said, oh, the media is taking my words out of context. They're misunderstanding what I meant. Look at the actual quote. And when it's played, you know, it's this sense of, well, maybe he didn't exactly mean what we're saying that he meant. So I want us to discuss another example of this technique with Donald Trump, but with a different phrase from, I don't know. And the phrase is, there's something going on. He said it in this case after the massacre at the gay nightclub in Orlando, Florida. You know, people can't believe it. They cannot believe that President Obama is acting the way he acts and can't even mention the words radical Islamic terrorism. There's something going on. It's inconceivable. Right. There's something well, going on. Well, Donald Trump, what he did do yesterday, now, he did refer be... to it as a terror strike. He did. I mean, it's it nefarious, right? I mean, it's very hard to see it as, as anything but... Donald Trump sort of saying, there's something going on with Obama. What don't we know about him? I mean, it, it goes back years with Trump where he's tried to delegitimize him over his birth certificate and raise questions about him being an American citizen. Does anyone else in American politics come close to using phrases like this? I think it's singular. I mean, I think it's by someone who knew what good script writing was on The Apprentice. He knew how to say something in seven seconds that would be so memorable for so many people and would sort of play on their nerves. And in a way, it's more powerful than any description of what is actually going on could ever be. 
Yeah, I think if if he tried to describe something in detail, he'd sound like either a silly armchair psychologist or an incredibly partisan Republican using predictable language. This is much more deft and subtle. So you've been on the phone, Pat, with Donald Trump a lot of times in long conversations. So you can distinguish between kind of the performance on stage and maybe a realer, more authentic Donald Trump on the phone. Do the same clauses and caveats occur when you're one-on-one? I think he's much more direct one-on-one. He doesn't, I don't think the, uh, he's not a self-editor to begin with, but I think that when he's sort of talking directly, there's an element of, look, you, you know what I'm talking about. There's sort of like this assumed knowledge that he goes for. In my conversations with him, whether he's been on the record or off the record, I feel like he's very direct and he doesn't use Things like, I don't know, and something's going you know, on something's out there. Something's going on here. He's not suggestive. He's, he's, he's quite direct. Which suggests that he's quite capable of doing and that there is an element of theater. I think there's a, no, I think there's a real performance aspect to his public presentations. I think he knows exactly what he's doing, trying either to play into crowds' fears, to rile up voters, to try to delegitimize what President Obama is doing or administration policies. He sort of knows exactly what he's doing with his language, and yet he makes it sound so casual when he's doing it. I feel this is the moment I need to remind listeners that you covered the theater for the New York Times for a really long time. I mean, when you watch Donald Trump give a speech and deploy these kinds of tactics, does it remind you of anything in the theater? Oh, it totally does. Throughout this entire campaign, I've felt like Trump has been giving this leading man performance, the way that he sort of goes to a kind of a bag of tricks in terms of the language that he uses, the the instinct for the audience. I remember he once said to me, you know, I always know that when I'm losing the audience, when I feel like they're not with me, all I need to do is just veer suddenly into saying, and we're going to build a wall. Okay, you ready? Who's going to pay for the wall? Mexico. Who? Mexico. And it's going to be great. Wow. And Mexico's going to pay for it. He, he sort of knows 100%. how to read an audience. I mean, this guy is a showman. He's a reality TV star. He has star. like a seismograph like on the audience. He can sort of feel when their energy is, oh, is high yeah. and low. Oh, absolutely. I mean, he really kind of gets it. And we have entered, it feels, some, some new territory in the last 48 hours with the Second Amendment line, the claim that Hillary Clinton, along with Barack Obama, is a founder of ISIS or the in her case, the MVP of ISIS, where no caveat can kind of alter the meaning of such a claim. And and no caveat was really offered. It seems like Donald Trump has decided that it's really double down time on his language and that maybe this is the moment where the caveats start falling away and he just goes directly at Hillary Clinton should get an award as the founder of ISIS or Barack Obama is the founder of ISIS you know, suggesting, making these lines about the Second Amendment that are meant to go directly into, like, the heart and mind of gun owners so they understand exactly what he sees as the threat being posed to them. I think this is his way of responding to a crisis in his campaign, not to become safer and more presidential. It's to go to what he knows and trusts, which is his use of language and the way that he delivers it to people. His favorite thing, by and large, are these rallies that he holds. Right. And yet it's not really working. 
it's not really growing his base of supporters. I mean, I was recently in Pennsylvania, and a lot of the undecided voters who really liked the politically incorrect Donald Trump early on are now just saying, ugh, enough already. Just not, they don't In sound, that New York, they Brooklyn accent? No, they don't sound quite like that. <laughs> My accents are exactly the same for all people. It's a slight You do problem. live in New York City. Pat, as good as you and I are, we are relative newcomers to the Trump phenomenon. I thought it'd be good to zoom out and speak with someone who's known Donald Trump and known the way he talks for a really long time. And for that, we're going to turn to Barbara Ress. She was the head of construction at the Trump Organization in the 80s and the 90s. Times readers met Barbara a few months ago in a story I wrote about Trump's interactions with women. Hey, Barbara, it's Michael. Hi, Michael. How are things in your neck of our metropolitan region? Pretty good. So, Barbara, when you're watching cable television at home and you hear Donald Trump compare Hillary Clinton to the founder of a terrorist group, or you hear him talking about what he suggests that people can do with their Second Amendment rights to kind of rein her in, does that feel recognizable as Trump language to you when you worked with him? Is that the same Donald Trump? Yes. Tell me more. Well, I mean, for one thing, he tends to exaggerate tremendously, like, you know, the, the thing about being the founder of, of ISIS, you know. Uh, other Republicans might make a comment to the effect that what Obama did with his policies uh, or Clinton might have had an impact on, on the uh, resurgence or the insurgence of, uh, of ISIS. But Trump comes out and says, you're the founder of ISIS. And he used to do that all the time. He would make a a tremendously exaggerated remark or make something up that wasn't even exaggerated, and then he would pounce on it and repeat it, just like he said, they're the founder. Then he said, they're the founder. And he said it again, they're the founder. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, that's the way he would do that, and he would repeat something enough times to make it the truth, maybe to himself, maybe to others. So you talked about this idea of hyperbole. So in the real estate industry as a New Yorker, like, real estate is hyperbolic. This is the most luxurious building. It's triple mint. Like, is that where this comes from, do you think? Is, was it was that par for the course, or was he even unique in, a, in an industry in which everyone's marketing all the time? I think he's unique. There's no question about that. He is absolutely a megalomaniac. Everything is the best or the worst. And in terms of hyperbole, he is the master at it. I've never seen anybody like him or even close to him. Yeah, we were saying earlier, I mean, it's almost like the, the showman quality. He's almost like an actor who knows the script that works best for him, and he just goes back to it again and again. Yes. Was it hard to work for him, given this disposition, given this habit? Uh, sometimes it was uh, very hard. Other times it was amusing. Tell me about the hard part. Well, I mean, just, to, you know, he would say something and it was something you disagree with or you, he would tell you to do something and he would just keep repeating it. And, you know, you would try to argue with him and there would be no arguing. He would just, you'd have to leave and come back. Literally go home or go away. Yeah, go away and come back. I would kind of think that yeah. on one level that might be a little refreshing for those of us who've worked with bosses <laughs> who can be, shall we say, cryptic, a uh, little hard to tell. You, I think you know where you stand with Donald Trump, right? Well, yes, you know where you stand at all times, but it's when he's telling you to do something that you know can't be done, 
it's pretty difficult to, mm-hmm. you know, when you're saying you can't be done, he just keeps repeating it. Barbara, you once told me the story of, of becoming quite upset about an interaction with him and finding yourself pretty pretty consumed by the experience. I remember a, a drive home from Midtown. Do you remember that? Yes, absolutely. I was, uh, we were having a big fight and um, we didn't resolve the fight. We left angry at each other and I drove home and I hit the side of the road and blew out two tires. I was extremely upset. Well, that's the that's the counterpuncher in him too, right? Someone comes at me or wants something from me, and I hit ten times, you know, hard back. I mean, the language that he used around the Second Amendment people and and Hillary Clinton, you know, had the feeling of like a threat, whether it was a threat because they were coming together as a group of voters to oppose her, or taking direct action to stop her in some other way. You know, he's very comfortable in that language. You know, I thought that was kind of like, I've seen him do things like that, but I don't mean to defend him by any stretch, but I think he it was kind of like a joke to him. Like, you know, he would say uh meetings, you know, if, uh, if this concrete guy doesn't do such and such, so-and-so will break his legs, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> and so it was like him saying, uh, you know, well, well, I don't know, these, uh, these Second Amendment people, who knows what they'll do. It was reckless more than it was intentional, I think. It feels like the way he talks and the the power of exaggeration, the ambiguity that's baked into the way he talks, that it would have served him really well in the real estate industry, in the construction business. I don't know that it served him that well. Um, You know, it sort of made him uh, a little bit of a character. And, um, you know, if people don't believe you after a while, you sort of not going to get what you want done. I mean, you know, his own people didn't believe him most of the time, and that was a problem for us because when he was telling the truth, we didn't know that either. I don't think that it really serves him to be like that. Do you think he's a, he's evolved from the days when, when he talked that way in the office to the performances you now see on stage as a candidate? I mean, there has to be some evolution in that Donald Trump. Yeah, I don't know that it's that very different, to be honest with you. And the thing that that sticks out in my mind is weak. You're weak. I mean, I heard him say that so many times, you know? So it sounds like none of this is that much of a surprise to you. No. I want to ask you about Donald Trump's loyalty to both employees, and I I guess if we're extrapolating his loyalty to the people who who are voting for him, is this a, a loyal guy? He used to be loyal. I saw a change in him when uh, when he had his financial problems, and uh, and he started blaming everybody for what went wrong in his life. Uh, I think he's loyal to an extent. I think he wants to be loyal. He values loyal employees, and he's promoted people that are loyal to him well beyond their their skills. But he also likes employees that don't argue with him. Mm, that's that's interesting because he's he's very much prizes the loyalty of Mike Pence, you know, his running mate, but you do wonder if Trump gets elected president and things start going south, you know, would he start throwing, you know, some of his staff members under the bus or something? Absolutely. Yeah, you you just wonder and, and sometimes especially when you get in office language doesn't solve everything. You can't you're president now, you can't necessarily just go out and you know, use language about 
other countries or companies in America without there being consequences on Wall Street or in diplomatic relations? Yeah, I think that the the problem that he's going to have is that he's not going to be talking to the converted. I mean, you know, he's got this group of people where he goes out to rallies and he's got people that that they adore him and uh, you know, they he feeds on on their approval and everything. That that's would not happen when he was president of the United States. He would no. not I mean, just you can see what he's doing with the media now and he's saying that the election is rigged cuz he's starting to worry that he's going to lose. And he's talking about the debates and his conditions and how everybody's so unfair to him. I mean, it sort of tells you what what to expect in the future. Now, I think Barbara's nailing it on the head. I mean, he's really talking to still people who believe in him. You know, he at this stage of an election, you're usually going out to moving to the middle and talking to undecided voters, you know, but he's just still using kind of the the same language and the same policy ideas, you know, just to that 35 to 40 percent that's, you know, they're not going anywhere, but you don't win with that. What do you do these days when you're at home watching cable news and Donald Trump comes on the television? Um, Most of the time I don't watch it. So I watch the sound bites and that's enough for me. Um, there was a point in time when he went on a tirade against me. <laughs> I watched a lot of that. Thanks, Barbara. Thanks, Barbara. Okay. She doesn't seem to see a big difference between the candidate and the construction no, boss. No, no. It was really interesting to hear someone who was like that up close and could see the, the, the public Trump and the private Trump. I mean, and the reality is he, he uses language, he uses his voice, he uses emphasis, you know, it sounds like the same ways in private to get what he wants, you know, that he's doing in public. The The problem is, is that in, in private, he had so much power, he had money, he had deals, you know, he had cash and prizes for the people who worked with him, you know, but in public, it's the voters and the voters are incredibly fickle. They've got a whole other candidate that they can go with who a lot of people feel like is the safer choice or would be safer. Uh, you know, it doesn't work the same way. I feel like Barbara gave us a lesson that we all learn in marriage the hard way. People don't really change that much. <laughs> Thank you, Patrick. Thanks, Michael. We've been talking about how Trump uses language as a kind of rhetorical get-out-of-jail-free card. It allows him to say, oh, just kidding. But remember when Barbara Rez's car went careening down the highway and the tires blew out? Words have consequences. My colleague Thomas Friedman wrote about this in a really memorable column this week. He drew comparisons to a historical moment we all remember well. I asked Tom to come on and talk about this. Tom, thank you for joining us. Great to be with you, Michael. So I just want to set the scene for our listeners here, you're on vacation, you're out of the country, and you hear about this really remarkable comment that Donald Trump made about the Second Amendment, and you basically write an emergency column. I mean, what was your reaction? How strong was it that you felt the need to do that? The way the whole thing was phrased echoed or reminded me of exactly the kind of incitement that happened in Israel some 20 plus years ago by opponents of then Israeli Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin, who was depicted as, as a Nazi, he was depicted in Nazi uniforms. It was uh, said that he was going to give back all of the Jewish holy sites in the West Bank to, to Yasser Arafat. And that kind of incitement ultimately heated up uh, a Jewish extremist named Yigal Amir, 
who went out and assassinated Rabin. And I, I felt it was really important to draw that analogy for people and then just reminding people that uh, I think, you know, General Hayden, the former CIA director said, you know, it's not just about what you say, it's about what people hear. And the reason I, I felt so strongly about it now is we've just had a spate over the last year, but particularly in the last six months, of loner terrorists, mostly young men, kind of fringe people, often with petty criminal backgrounds and usually with psychological problems. And they are inspired and given permission by um, you know, radical preachers and ideologues who frequent social networks. And some of them then just go out and act on, on what they hear, feeling that they have been inspired and do have permission. Or what they think they hear, right, which is a big part exactly. of it. Exactly. So I want to ask you about something that happens in politics all the time, especially in the presidential campaign, which is delegitimization. Candidates attempt to delegitimize each other. But what we're seeing here is something a little more nuanced and complicated, which is attempting, it seems, to perhaps turn someone into an enemy of the state. Traitor. Yeah, it's really to put the mark of Cain on them. I don't just disagree with this person. I don't just disagree with their policies. They are enemies of the state. You know, if Trump wants to say that ISIS emerged as a byproduct of Obama's decision to withdraw our troops from Iraq, that's a very legitimate argument to make. Obama would, would counter it with legitimate arguments. But that's a real foreign policy argument that we can and, and probably should have. But to somehow suggest that Hillary's their MVP, if anyone could be described as their MVP in many ways, Hillary could easily turn that on Trump and saying, by you calling for a ban on the entry of Muslims into America, you are playing exactly into ISIS's hands. That's what they want. They want a great war with America in order to turn all Muslims against us. I want to go back to Israel in the 1990s and to an environment that you've written about and thought about a lot. And, and in particular, there was a rally that Benjamin Netanyahu attended. And because you drew the parallels, I think this is an interesting place to kind of set things. There were chants at that rally of death to Rabin. It happened to be one month or so before the assassination. And it's a fascinating case to of how much words can matter. And I don't know the answer. I mean, yeah. it's possible this was so thick in the air there that that one moment may or may not have mattered. But in retrospect, it looms so large for people. I mean, talk a little bit about what was happening in Israel at that time. And are there real parallels with some of the language we're hearing at Trump rallies now where, where it's lock her up and much worse things, including chance of kill her. Yeah, I, I think there there is a real parallel. You know, there's a whole movie on this subject, The Death of Rabin. And the first two hours, basically, of the movie, you don't even see Rabin. It's really all about the campaign of incitement and delegitimation against it. And basically, his death is, is really presented, and I think in a very both evocative and, uh, and, I, and I think, you know, credible way, as a byproduct of that process of incitement. Is there regret in Israel political culture over the absence of denunciations of that rhetoric at the time in a way that there may very much be in the United States now? Well, this is a very good question. And, and there's absolutely no question that in Israeli political culture, the death of Rabin as a result of that kind of delegitimation and incitement campaign, or as at least a partial byproduct of it, has seeped into Israeli culture, and you have not seen a repeat of that kind of language since, that Israelis learned that words matter. And politicians there have been much more careful since then not to cross certain lines. And, and, and the minute one would, you would immediately see 
them cite the Rabin example. So Donald Trump doesn't have a monopoly on careless language. And you wrote something earlier in the year, much earlier in the year, that I wanted to bring back. It was about Hillary Clinton and her use of words Mm -hmm. and her occasional carelessness with language. This is what you wrote. Lying is serious business, but Hillary's fibs or lack of candor are all about bad judgment she made on issues that will not impact the future of either my family or my country. And you cited the email servers, the lecture she gave at Goldman Sachs, and you said that they essentially weren't all that important. I wonder if we've reached a point kind of in our politics where that's not necessarily like the bar we once aspired to because we're comparing kind of whose fibs are worse than, than some other person's fibs. But, but ultimately, of course, we would like a president who doesn't fib at all, right? Absolutely. I mean, I will miss Obama. I will miss the fact that, that there has been no major ethical scandal around him or his family. And frankly, I'm appalled reading in our paper once again about contacts between the Clinton Foundation and uh, then Secretary of State Clinton. Because when the Clinton Foundation, a Doug Ban called on issues that the Clinton Foundation wanted uh, help with by the Secretary of State, then Hillary Clinton, there should have been only one answer. Doug, call your congressman. And I, I find it appalling reading that story that that wasn't the answer. So I, I think it's really a, a tragic that we have to make this, well, you know, someone's a less of a liar than somebody else. I think Hillary Clinton is perfectly capable of being president, though. But her ethical lapses are nothing to be shrugged off of and, and, and minimized. They're, they're, they're very disappointing. And in that sense, it's a, it's a disappointing choice, but it's the choice we have. And ultimately, you've got to choose you know, which person in the job is a capable of the job and capable of growing in the job. And that's what you've got to choose. There was a line in your column that really stuck with me, and it was about family. And you had a line about Donald Trump's children, and you said— that you thought based on his conduct over the past couple of days and weeks that his children should be ashamed of him. And it felt to me like perhaps you were trying to reach them somehow, perhaps invite them to intervene in the campaign. I don't want to read into your mind. That's why we have you on the phone from Europe. What were you trying to do there? Uh, I'm not even sure myself. I was simply thinking about it as a dad myself, how I would feel if I had engaged in the kind of, you know, mocking of a gold star family, suggesting in some vague way that Second Amendment advocates might want to take the law into their own hands. I I know what my family would have felt toward me, and I was wondering what his kids really feel toward him. Do you think they should step up and and correct or stop or— Well, I only raised it because he himself has pointed to his kids as his top advisors. So if you want to get to him, and if he has drawn them in as his top advisors and highlighted them as his top advisors, then if you want to change his behavior, it seems to me legitimate to call on them. So I wasn't the only person to to be struck by that line. Bob Woodward was as well of the Washington Post, a legendary reporter. He said he thought that represented excessive rhetoric and that there are now, quote, in his words, excesses on both sides. He thought that there's a zone of protection around children in campaigns. And I, and I want to give you a chance to respond. Oh, my God. I mean, who are the main speakers at Trump's convention? There is kids. Who is he cited as his top advisors? His kids. So you're saying the zone of protection was lifted. Yeah. When, by the when, you, when you bring them in, when they become advocates on morning shows. All right. We appreciate you being here by phone all the way from uh, the UK. So thank you, Tom. Thanks so much. Okay, Bye-bye. Bye. We're going to end with a single number from The Upshot, a number that somehow tells us something surprising or illuminating about the state of the campaign. 
Nate Cohen, what's our number? It is 273. That sounds a lot like the number required to become president, but it's a little off. It's a little higher. You need 270 to win. And 273 is the number of electoral votes where Hillary Clinton appears to have at least a 10-point lead in the polls since the convention. Which tells us she's really likely to win them. Yeah, so if she holds on to these states, the states won by Kerry and Gore, as well as Virginia, Colorado, New Mexico, and New Hampshire, then she would win the presidency even if she lost all of the other states, like Iowa and Ohio and North Carolina and Florida and Georgia and Nevada. How do you find these things? Well, I spend a lot of time on the internet. (laughs) And then I occasionally take notes on what I see. (laughs) Thanks, Nate. Great to be here. That's it for the second episode and the first week of the run-up. We'll be back on Tuesday, and then every Tuesday and Friday until the election day on November 8th. Subscribe to the run-up on iTunes or however it is you listen to us, and get all the episodes automatically. And rate us, just like you do your Uber driver. The Run-Up is a production of The New York Times. Our campaign manager is Lisa Tobin. Samantha Hedig is our war room director. Our senior advisor is Sam Dolnick. Our chief strategist is Carolyn Ryan. Our rapid response team is Diantha Parker, Pedro Rosada, and Teresa Cotzerillas. Our debate coach is Vanessa Romo. Every campaign has a theme song, and ours is by Jim Brungberg and Ben Landsberg of Wonderly.